Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm in Gail's Cafe in Exmouth Market and I'm with my old friend, but not old person friend, Alan Tomlinson. Alan, how are you? I'm good, thanks. It's very nice to be here in this lively, restored area of old London town. Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? It's uh, sort of the most in a bit of what you could call the East End, but it's so central, barely at all. Now, Alan, we've known one another a long time, and you've done lots of amazing things in that time, but I'd love to start off, if I can, by just asking you what you're up to now. Oh, what I'm doing now is finishing a manuscript on... Uh, FIFA. It's an update of the story of... And of FIFA the, stands for... Uh, sorry, FIFA, the um, Federation Internationale de Football Association. International ruling body of world soccer, yeah. football world soccer. I should say, we've got listeners in 50 different countries. Yeah. So, so uh, well, one has to be careful with acronyms. Although thanks, FIFA is arguably FIFA, the FIFA best is a, an acronym <laughs> where I think even more than IOC, it is understood as a noun for an organisation. Because all of those 50 countries will have a stake in FIFA. In, in FIFA IOC and, International and Olympic world Committee. Uh, and we'll get onto this later, I imagine, but Alan also works on the Olympics yeah. as well as football and many other topics. So anyway, you're so, working so with, with FIFA, I'm updating really the story that I, I described and presented in a few books with my old co-author and colleague John Sugden at the University of Brighton. And, and really it's a story of how, how FIFA prospered, expanded, allowed a lot of cultural and political possibilities and openings for um, smaller countries and post-imperial and post-colonial openings for these countries to, to join different aspects of, of the uh, football story. Uh, but it's also a story of, of self-aggrandizement of particular kinds of individuals who saw football on this expanding global stage yeah. as, as, as a, a form of business and a form of uh, self personal uh, development. And, and in, ter- in terms of the general question about um, large international global organisations, it's a story really about accountability, lack of ethics, and and, an embedded form of corruption that's characterised the leadership since the mid-1970s. So, so my, my manuscript really updates this story over the last decade or so and, and shows really uh, where all of the people who are at the top of, of, of um, FIFA and in some parts of the world um, at the top of their national associations of, of, of football in particular, obviously, um, uh, uh, really how they got there, how they stay there and what ethical, um, moral questions one can pose about their reasons for being there. Now, of course, you're writing this from Britain, although you're a dedicated internationalist and cosmopolitan, as befits a man coming from Burnley. And it seems to me that in the last few years, at least, the British press corps has had a very singular attitude to FIFA, in particular its head, Sepp Blatter, uh, of 
absolute antipathy and antagonism. And there are nowadays newspaper headlines and major TV stories all the time about FIFA and supposed corruption. Whereas when you started investigating this stuff, what, 25 years ago? Yeah. It was a more shadowy. It was shadowy. Also, you had to. You had to write letters and make phone calls to Switzerland, where the headquarters of FIFA, like the headquarters of a lot of these sports organisations and other international organisations, is in Switzerland for reasons to do with the historical mission of Switzerland to be neutral, stay neutral, and of course with the unaccountability of the fiscal systems and, and the opportunities for, um, for, for the certain undeclared uses of monies that, that Switzerland and its uh, banking regime offers. Uh, so tw 25 years ago and more, uh, I actually had to write to uh, Seth Blatter, who's the current president's predecessor, Yao uh, Havaland, who's the, the Brazilian who is um, still alive, not very well at the moment, and in his mid-90s, mid write letters and uh, ring up and ask for documents. It's a very different world now. Thank you very in, in terms of the accessibility and, and the the, um, the the reach into the thank you very much the reach into the organisational centre yeah. of, of the institution and there's been some very very critical work accomplished by um, British-based English investigative journalists on, on this whole area, beginning with work that was done by Viv Simpson and Andrew Jennings on the International Olympic Committee and its leadership. Andrew Jennings has picked up the baton from the investigative journalist and done some extremely important forms of um, revelatory research and investigation on FIFA's finances, on FIFA's modus operandi. And so it's that the, the when I started work on it, I think I was the only critical researcher asking questions about FIFA and where it had come from and what its leadership was doing back in the mid-80s. Uh, so the, the British press has, I think, been stimulated by other examples of work such as Andrew Jennings's, but also, and perhaps still more interestingly, there's, there's a sense... Um, within Britain that, that FIFA has stitched everything up yeah. against, against the, the Brits against the English against, and in particular against the English in their attempts of the Football Association which is the the Football Association is the English Football Association no, it, it, because it was the first in the world it didn't feel it necessary to, to label itself the Football Association of England or the English Football Association. Just like the English don't put their names on their stamps and the United States doesn't put its name on its yeah. email address. Yeah, yeah. So, so. That's the big boy dog that is trying to disrupt Alan's revelations about the association. So it, um, there, there's a, a running feud, really. Yeah. Um, between the English FA, which at times was, it backed Blatter in yeah. order to, when he became president back in 1998, thinking that it would then have his support to, to gain a men's World Cup event to stay in England. And, um, and then, rather, rather foolishly, the English Football Association bid again for a World Cup for the... Um, 
For the nine, for the twenty. 22 World Cup <laughs> and the 2018 World Cup but, but, but a more powerful force in terms of yeah. the, the FIFA stage last time round for the 2018 World Cup um, with Vladimir Putin and, and, and without any surprise to people who watch these things closely Russia got the World Cup then and, and with some surprise to quite a lot of people but if you look at the inner workings of the politics and machinations of FIFA not that much surprise that Qatar got the Men's World Cup for 2022 and so British journalists and, and particularly those who are representing England's interests I believe that there'd been a kind of conspiracy or a stitch-up against the interests of the English over the years. And what they're really saying is that their conspiracies haven't worked, and they don't like the other ones. They are. The, the, estimate, for, they? Yeah, the, the estimate for the bid last time round, <laughs> when the results for about 2018 and 2022 came out, were that the English FA, this was towards the end of 2010 when the decisions were taken in early December, the, um, the FA spent roughly £19 million pounds gaining one vote. In its, in its favour, um, and, and that, even that can't be definitively... I'm not an expert on this like you are, but if anybody had asked me, I would have said Russia will get the next one, mm. and somewhere in the Middle East will get the one after that, and I would, have I would have given the FA that advice for a million pounds. What would you have charged the FA to tell them the bleeding fucking obvious? <laughs> Uh, nothing. I would have just hoped that they would have listened to me. Well, one of the well, do they listen? Here's a question. Because I should say, listeners, that Alan is not only a very noted intellectual in terms of his strictly academic work, but he's also somebody with a major presence in the public sphere in that he appears on radio, on television, in the newspapers, and before Parliament. He's been hauled before Parliament to try to explain his behaviour. No, uh, before Parliament to discuss these matters. Thank you. So why doesn't, what, what is the FA's response to you? I think that's a very good question because some of the... Because all they had to do was ask you and you could have told them, save your money. Well, this is in, in effect what I was saying back in 2002, 2002 to, to the, House, the House of Commons Select Committee on these events, looking back at how, how the English had not won the right to stage the Men's World Cup uh, in 2006. Uh, and and, and uh, that, the work that I'd done and, the, uh, and others had done, the, that I, I'd done, showed that, that they were simply naive players in a quite complex political uh, world. The, the, the fact is that, that these things get talked up, boosted up, they, they, they get associated with forms of regeneration, forms of, of so-called impact, economic impact and national status. Uh, new people come into the frame to, to lead it to, in, in, in an organisation like the Football Association. And um, there's an extraordinary 
belief that some of these people have that a certain kind of approach to those 24 people, sometimes it's less than that if somebody's suspended on ethical charges or something, the 24 people who make the vote, uh, is an extraordinary belief among, among some of the um, authorities in the game that if you turn up with... Uh, well, th three wise men is what the attempt that was made in um, in Zurich last time round. If, if you turn up with with somebody like David Beckham, um, the, the and, and, and the, the the Prince William, William the, who is going to, due to become the next but one King of of, in, of, um, of, of the United Kingdom. Uh, and uh, you turn up with people on this kind of scale that you will sway people's opinion, that they, they will just be impressed. There's a very strange belief, I think, still prevalent among those kind of hierarchies um, in sports organisations that status and presence can, can, can change people's perception. And that's not the case necessarily at all. And so, some, so bodies like people have got used to flattering those who seek to flatter them and then misreadings are constantly made about where support actually lies. Mm. So I could have said, yeah, give me a million, uh, it will save you 18 or 19, but I, I might then have been uh, uh, really on dodgy ethical territory myself, Toby, if I'd done that. First time for everything, old thing. What? Now, I wonder as you uh, embark on your eggs, bacon, tomatoes, English muffin, and continue your assault on the croissant, the coffee mm. and the OJ. This is better than a Burnley breakfast. Well, it's different to a Burnley breakfast. Absolutely. Whether we could turn to the Olympic uh, topic, because just this summer, the Olympics, of course, the Summer Olympics were held here in London, in East London, not very far really from here, uh, and you're an expert on this too. How many Olympic Games have you attended? Well, I've hung about half a dozen winter and summer Olympic Games, sometimes before, uh, sometimes during, and um, sometimes afterwards, to and, look, and having a look. Hmm? And World Cups, how many World Cups? And World Cup, of I've, men's football? Yeah, I've been to three, three, three men's World Cup finals. And, um, and also watched a lot of those I've not been to, of course, on, on television, as, as most of us have to, for most of the time. But you've done archival mm. and ethnographic work at these events. You've also done political economic work. From an outsider's perspective, I watched this year's Olympics mostly from Colombia. It seemed to me yet another case of a lot of blowhard, imaginated, very imaginative policy wonks or policy wanks claiming massive regeneration of East London, claiming the triumph of British creative industries, and spending vastly greater sums of public money than had ever been expected in any of the projections. And the event being declared a national triumph, even the dear old Guardian being infected with mad chauvinism and nationalism in its coverage, by and large, let alone the other papers. Uh, and yet, from my perspective, just one more absurdity. 
in the long litany of mega sporting events that are supposed not just to be that, which is fine and fun, but are supposed to be the key to reinvigorating economies that are going through deindustrialization. Do you mind if I have a bite of my lovely quack, egg and quack? Absolutely not, mm. anything. You mm. go right ahead. Mm. So that's my sort of jaundiced outsider perspective. And uh, I'm forever meeting British people here who tell me, well, I thought that way until it all started, and then I just got so caught up in it. It was so wonderful. I felt so proud to be British. Look how we could put on a show like Da Da Da. We won all these medals. It's sort of very primitive nationalism. Uh, and, and since that nationalism has uh, continued, it seems to have obscured the capacity or the desire to question the political economic debts uh, incurred as a consequence of this massive public investment. So I just wondered what your take is on this. I think I've spoken for long enough in the context of your placing the fried egg inside the croissant and chowing down on it. Right, let me swallow. My father used to say to me, you mustn't speak until you've chewed your piece of solid at least 32 times. Yeah. 32 times? 32 times. It's very difficult to do that when one's conversing over breakfast. Of course not. In, in other words, we didn't converse over breakfast back in Birmingham. Right. Well, you're too busy counting to 31. What happens in any Olympic is that the organisers make these promises, you've summarised some of the promises, they make promises about social development, economic regeneration, and in particular, in the host city of course, some, some extraordinary kind of um, transformation of, of sites, of places, spaces. The story, as you said, all we have to do is, 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 is get on a plane and go and have a look around. The story that Beijing is one of magnificent architectural iconic symbols looking ordinary and unused. Uh, if you get the train out of central Athens, if people can afford to run a train out of central Athens now, you get to a weed, weed-covered, neglected facilities and parks that nobody has any resources to restore or to use for. Uh, you, you're familiar, of course, with the Australian context from your time in, in, in Australia as well, but, but um, the, the, perhaps there's a little bit more positive you could say about the Sydney Olympics of 2000, but nevertheless, the stadium is renamed, it's, it's, it's relabeled from time to time. As far as I'm aware, have you got any knowledge on this, Toby, that Homebush Bay was never, which was the Olympic Village up, up the river in Sydney, this was never going to become the, the, the trendy, fashionable dormitory town of the promises of the organisers. And if we get back to Atlanta in 1996, it was notoriously um, an event held in the interests of property developers and economic boosters for the city of Atlanta in the United States. So the story, as you said, is always pretty much the same. Now what happened in England, stroke Britain, with its, um, with its medal tally, 
is, is that, precisely as you described it, that people who were somewhat sceptical at the beginning um, d did get on board. The BBC, I think, generated 2,500 hours of, of coverage of, of sport, covered every event to, 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 uh, with, with tiny audiences, obviously, for marginal events at times. And so a lot of people saw this, it came on, it started slowly in terms of winning gold and, and so on and then as, as, as a lot of us were saying, wait for the rowers you know, Oxbridge to the rescue and then the rowers arrived and then we knew the cyclists would have a very good effective go and indeed the cyclists and the rowers arrived the gold medal started coming and there was an extraordinary positive, one of these intangible buzzers and I've met nobody who said, oh, the games were crap, the games were a waste of time. And, and, and people go round, one of my earlier pieces talks about the Disneyfication of the Olympic Park, with a, a little infantilised smile on their face around the Olympic Park, just as people tend to do in, in Disneyland or theme parks. And, and people just wanted to feel to be part of that. If they didn't pay the money, because sometimes it's expensive, it got, got quite cheap actually to get to the Paralympics which was also a, a close to sell out success uh, so, but, but um, if, if, if people couldn't afford the, the, the tickets because they were quite expensive for high profile events but one afternoon one family of three or was telling me from Brighton where I live that, that it cost them I think £600 for the afternoon to, to, to see a bit of sport up there. If, they, if you couldn't afford that, what people did is they went on the streets to watch a bit of the cycling, they got up to walk around the streets to watch a bit of the marathon. So there was a, there was a classically claimed kind of feel-good factor about the Olympics and the 29 gold medals accomplished by the representatives of the British Olympics Olympic team uh, got it into third place after the two superpowers of the States and the United States of America and of, um, of China. So, so there was this kind of goony looking grin on people's faces throughout that three to four weeks. It was extraordinary. Uh, whether the Olympic Park, which the, the Olympic Stadium is disputed, who, who, who might have it? Could it be a soccer side? Uh, why wasn't it built in order to cater for soccer? All of those things. Um, the, the, the bigger space there it is closed for a couple of years, and people don't don't really know now when it's going to be open to the public. Yeah. So, so the, the, it's beginning to fade, and this is part of the story. That after the event, the kind of uh, PR successes of a successful yeah. mega event just tend to fade and people will start to question. But the, the really important thing is to question the different dimensions of claimed legacy from the beginning. And that's what I'm that's doing what, what you're trying in to the do. next so few months as well. There's a cycle of scepticism, love and scepticism again. Yeah, and, and then what might happen at times, Barcelona's an interesting case, uh, Spain's economy as, as we all know quite well is is, is is very difficult the the the, the, the youth unemployment 
age 18 to 24 young people in Spain is over 50%. So you know, if you think back 20 years, it's, it's 20 years this year since the Barcelona Summer Olympics. Think of that as a promise of legacies. You might have a few interesting legacies like great sports men in particular uh, on the tennis court or, or in Formula One motor cars. Uh, what, what kind of legacy has that Olympics really been for that younger generation that's, that's unemployed, that sees no future? Uh, and yet what happens at that stage is people get nostalgic for when the games were held. So, so in the longer, the mid to long term cycle of these events, there becomes a sort of commemorative nostalgic reproduction of when we did the games. It can be retrieved in this way on the level of, of what you and I would call myth and, and an ideological redefinition. Of course, the Barcelona games are often held up, they're trumpeted as a success story, little recognising that the really key element after that and during that period and in the run-up to it was European Union expenditure in Spain, mm. which skyrocketed, and in Barcelona in particular. Of course, Barcelona is the wealthiest part of Spain anyhow. So I think a lot of the the sort of baseline data that are derived from an extrapolation from Barcelona are quite flawed because they neglect these wider political economic stimuli that applied in that case. That's a point that's also made by um, Stefan Szymanski from the... Uh, who's a, a, you know Stefan, I think, who's now in Michigan. Right. Um, but, but about how these sorts of boosterist claims concerning these events uh, ignore some of the other quite clear and quite tangible economic forces that were working at the time. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Uh, the, the sad thing is in the era of sport, if you take, for example, boosters trying to get public money to support the regeneration of sporting stadium in the United States for private owners, where billionaires are having their grounds redeveloped at the public expense, under the threat that they will, if they don't receive this subsidy, take their teams elsewhere. There's another cycle which is incredibly regrettable. When this is first put to the public, all the opinion polls show they're opposed because they're told that the cost will be so massive, the return will be so minimal. Uh, then there's a, a plebiscite, uh, and right before the plebiscite is held on whether or not to commit municipal monies to support these billionaires, there are massive television advertising campaigns undertaken locally by the people in favour of redevelopment, and sure enough, almost every time the plebiscite passes. And then later on they wonder, what the fuck did we do? We're now in massive debt, we, they only play eight games a year here. In, um, if you're in the National Football League, yeah. you only have a guaranteed eight home games a year. You get more if you're baseball, of course. Right? Well, if you're baseball, you get a guaranteed 81 a year. Mm. And in, uh, But if you're football, you get a guaranteed 80 a year. Mm. So that's four hours times eight for peanut sellers. That's not exactly stimulating youth employment for the unskilled. No. So what, 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 in your view then, Toby, what do you think achieves the popular support for the moment of commitment there? 
Well, I think it's, it is television Memory. advertising. Um, it's television advertising. Uh, they, you know, well, it plays on nostalgia as well, doesn't it? It plays on nostalgia, oh. on pride, and on boosterism. Mm. So it's a mixture of what we had, what we have, and what we will have. So in some ways it encapsulates in the space of just three or four weeks precisely the much longer term cycle that you've identified. And I guess for people like you and me who are committed to cultural studies, our dilemma in all of this is that we don't want to utter the words that shall not be spoken, namely false consciousness. And so when we talk about the glow that you see on people's faces, as it were, uh, some of that is a sort of genuine popular energy that needs to be understood and appreciated. But I certainly don't accept it in this case as a legitimate reason for the misuse of working class people's tax dollars. No, no. I, I wouldn't want to uh, move back to an explanation in terms of false consciousness because that always underestimated in that, in, in that cruder Marxist, uh, not just Marxist, but that cruder version of Marx's notions of um, consciousness and, and ideology, uh, that always underestimated people's capacity to make their own judgments. Now, I, mean, I, I did a piece a long time ago now on, on, on sports like Nur and Spell, as you, as you may recall, a particular regional sport in Northern England which, which had a several century long history, uh, uh, but also work in that area of Northern England on cricket and, and the significance of cricket in the local community and, and, and the way in which sport could be used by local local factory owners, industrialists to, to um, keep workers happy, but those workers at times, they didn't have, they didn't have um, educational possibilities, they didn't have routes to social mobility, they knew that they were signing up really to, um, to, to validate the authority and so on of, of, of the local ruling class. Um, it was not false consciousness, it was a sort of negotiated compromise of, of, of realistic existence. But the false consciousness idea treats people too much as, um, as uninformed dupes. Right, so I think we have to move away from that particular crude uh, model um, of false consciousness. Uh, and, and one thing about the big, the big sporting occasion that we've been talking about, the big mega event, and this this this, this glazed-looking pleasure that people might have on their faces, of course, sport, sport does have a capacity on the level of those big events uh, to ma matter more than anything else the moment it is occurring. I mean, the, the, the couplet that I've used to, to account for this is, is magnificent trivia. That these big sports events are magnificent, but they're simultaneously trivial next to issues such as war, economy, poverty, want, and so on. Um, so, so, but but they, they have a constant uh, attraction to, to, to us, to those of us who love sports, we, we, we know that we can enter that arena or we can turn on that television at a particular moment and we don't give a toss about anything else in the world about, other than that duel between the, the bowler and the batsman at cricket or the pitcher and, 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 and his style um, or, or, or the diver 
the, the divers nerves on the board whatever it is it's extraordinary how, how this combination of theatre contest and performance can draw us in into part of it and it is magnificent to watch some of the most pr primed sports performers at their peak um, and we understand that I mean, you can argue similarly about theatre, opera, and so, and so on on this level. And yet, at the same time, we come out of that, back to our daily lives. Have we got the work ready for the, the next week? Have we got a job? You know, what's the mortgage like? What's the economy like? And, and um, I think understanding sports power on that level of, of people's experience is really important. That does not translate into all of the things we were talking about, like hard evidence or hard indicators of, um, of, of, le of, of legacy and, and of, of, of particular kinds of um, regenerative impact and so on. It's different. But what, 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 the, what the, those who make the promises know is that if things go well enough, then you can keep people on side because of that experiential side of, 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 the, of the event, the moment, and the sporting encounter. I've got, I think that's I've got to get back to my egg. Yes, I realise that. I think that's beautifully put. I think it does encapsulate something very striking. I guess I just wish that the boosters would simply say from the beginning, this is going to cost a shitload of money, it's going to be public, this is really what it's going to cost. The returns are dubious in monetary terms. Mm. However, this magnificent trivia, as you've so aptly termed it, has all kinds of positive components that are difficult to measure, and so, given this is the cost, and we'll give you real numbers, and given that these are the returns, and there won't be many numbers, let's just see whether people want to do it. Why lie all the time? Why go against all the evidence? And this is one of these areas where conservative neoclassical economists and Marxist political economists are absolutely in agreement. These are maniacal public subsidies of private mm. interests. Mm. Right? There's no dispute on areas like that between these quite different wings of thought. Let, let me um, ask you then uh, to go back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary when someone's running for a fly ball, to your origins in sociology and cultural studies. Because uh, I'd love to have, in the remaining uh, half of our talk, a little bit of a retrospective. Uh, I think I first started reading your work in about 1986, and that was to do with sports. But actually, that's not what you did your doctorate in, is it? No. No, I, um, I did my doctorate in what we called then the sociology of literature, but um, with a cross-cultural and, and, and a strong theoretical bent, really, because I was evaluating particular bodies of, of cultural Marxism, really. So whether it was George Lukács, uh, who wrote Didn't a lot... Did he play inside left of Preston North End? No, no, no. He was, wasn't he... Not Tom George Finney's Lucas, not Tom Finney. Part of Tom Finney's plumbing business. <laughs> no, 
George and Tom's. Yeah, so they, they'll get to maybe the they were related. They get to the parts the other men can't reach. Yeah, that, that maybe they were related. So I, I was looking at, at theories of what we now call theories of cultural production, really, but 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 but, but um, historically as well, looking at uh, my particular emphasis was on. On, on the novel and the emergence of the novel, the kind of sociology and social history of, 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 the, um, of, of the novel as a form of, of either um, ideolo ideological consciousness or, or emergent, emergent projective consciousness. Now those were the kind of categories I was working with. And, and so this was at University of Sussex in what was called sociological studies, but in sociological studies um, back then, uh, the year ahead before me was another a couple of years I think in, in graduate school was someone you know well who was Tony Bennett who professor at the Open University in, in England for some time and um, is, is now in Sydney in Sydney Australia uh, Janet Wolfe who wrote some very important stuff which combined philosophy sociology um, and, 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 and lit crit really in a new kind of materialist aesthetic and um, other people Mary Evans who became professor of women's studies at Sussex at Kent University you know, wrote um, feminist re-evaluation of, of um, Virginia Woolf. These were all in graduate school at University of Sussex at the time. So uh, we, we were very interdisciplinary in that sense and we were asking questions really uh, about the, the, the um, ideological accomplishments of things that looked as innocent at the time as, as, as books and literature. Yeah. So that, that, that was the, the graduate phase of what I did. It, as an undergraduate, I, I, I majored in English uh, with, with sociology, but it also included a very strong, strong core of undergraduate study in, in social and cultural history and philosophy. Was this at the University of Turf Moor? Oh, well, the University of Turf Moor was earlier. <laughs> I went, when I was a young boy, um, the, 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 the Northern Team Burnley, which was one of the original 12 members of the Football League in England, uh, was, was champion, champion of England. Um, I, I have to say that uh, there was a kind of lacuna in, 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 in top-class soccer performance at that couple of years because it was after the Munich tragedy had demolished most of the Manchester United side. Um, which was a, it, that was a team that could have dominated for several years if, if it were, its energies had been managed and balanced, you know. Um, with the decimation of that team in that tragedy of air crash, Wolverhampton Wanderers, the English Midlands team, came to prominence and won the championship a couple of times. And then, the, and then for the next few years, the top couple of teams were Tottenham Hotspur and Burnley. And in 1960, Burnley won the, the, the national championship. And you were about eight or nine. No, I, I was when it won. I was I was nine when yeah. when uh, Burnley went to uh, Manchester and played against a, a team um, called Manchester City, which has been rebuilt on Middle East money, uh, but um, and won two one. To, uh, with a winning goal by a, a, a little, a, a tiny, uh, dribbling right winger called Trevor Meredith, 
and, and Burnley was champion. And this was an extraordinary, uh, dramatic context for a small industrial um, and declining industrial northern town to, to win that and, and then to enter the European Cup. And the following season, Real Madrid lost to, I forgot who knocked Real Madrid out because I was watching Burnley closely and Burnley was installed as just about joint favourite to win the European Cup but a little bit of over cocky play um, in, in Hamburg I think it was and we, and we were knocked out to the last eight now in Burnley 1958 through to 61 or 2 um, football was if, if not a university Turf Moor University it, it, it was a a place of public pleasure and dramatic, higher, expanded profile beyond the small town itself. Floodlights, I remember the evenings and the late, the winter afternoon when the floodlights came on. Floodlights were a brand new piece of technology. UEFA symbolism, for the, UEFA is the European um, organising ruling body of, of um, European football. Uh, you have the symbolism for the Champions League, which the, the Champions League being the new name from 1992 onwards for the European Cup, captures, if you just look at it, that idea of illumination on, on a dark canvas. And, and sports under floodlights at that time was a combination of, 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 of traditional pleasures of, of team competitions and new technologies of illumination that seemed to be taking the sport into a new age of modernity. So they, they, those experiences I think framed my generation Absolutely. for a long time. And, and it's because of that that the debate about whether modernity began in Paris or Buenos Aires in New York or Cairo is trumped by our understanding that it actually began in Burnley. A little bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> so here you are, you've done your sociology of literature degree, your doctorate, after this quite solid undergraduate uh, background. And uh, one of the next things I know you do, it may not be the next thing, but I'd love to hear you talk about it a bit, is that you're involved in a very famous open university course on popular culture called U203. Yeah, U203 popular culture was great. It was um, interdisciplinary. It was, it was in a way, I should add really that the Open University at that time in the 19, late 1970s and into the 80s uh, was the, the best resourced institution of its kind that we knew. So that people creating courses could make radio programs, cassette versions of them, television programs which have become spoofed a bit now, uh, and, and uh, booklets and, and collections of articles um, available. Uh, telephone tutorials, which you're seeing as really all, progressive. All, all of this stuff, yeah, with distance learning, but also where the students had to go on a summer school. And, um, and, and one of my jobs when I was working for the Open University part time, because I was full time at the University of Brighton, or Brighton Polytechnic as it then was, uh, was that I became the module coordinator for the Blackpool module of the popular culture course. Now why is it that people like me know the number of that course, U203, when I don't know the number of any course I've ever taught? It's because it became notorious, it, controversial. It became controversial because people were 
seem to be resourced to go and hang about, as some, some critics would call it, uh, hang about um, seaside places, uh, looking at things in the Blackpool case, uh, uh, and, and asking to think seriously about them. So it was one of the foci for, for enemies and critics of, of, um, of, of work on popular culture. And the course also had a lot of very interesting feminist work, semiotic work, um, but it made the study of popular pleasures serious. And that seemed to upset the right, it seemed to upset the traditionalists in a, a lot of parts of the university. And it was right at that time, of course, that within the universities and the polytechnic, we were building courses into, into the undergraduate curriculum for full-time younger students. Um, sometimes sometimes under different labels, communication studies and media studies, as, as you know, but in my own area, leisure studies, sports studies. And people would say, well, why is that important? And well, we, would, well, we would say, why is that not important? Studying such important dimensions of people's experience and people's lives, but, but also um, linking those to the, the bigger questions of um, who provided possibilities for people's leisure and pleasure, um, how these apparently innocent areas were, were actually spheres of, to use a little bit of cultural studies language, spheres of contestation about the meaning of everyday life, uh, linked to our rights as citizens and linked to classic questions such as access, access to possibilities in life. So U203 was, was a kind of catalyst for a very important set of dynamics there, uh, which, which moved a certain field forward. Um, possibly Antonio Gramsci may have been the most important framing theorist for, for something like that initiative at the time. The, 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 the work of Louis Althusser was always used as well, but on a theoretical level, it was the, to enter classic Gramscian territories about about the nature of consent, about the construction of every the everyday, and and the political, the political underpinnings of something that we call common sense. And it seemed to scare a lot of the traditionalists. I, I saw in one of your books, Toby, this morning before we came out for breakfast, um, a reminiscence about the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies Working Papers Number 4, which put art and literature as words next to motor racing. Yeah, in, in one of the earlier, still I think, might have been earlier still than that, Centre um, Working Paper Collections, you had an article called The Meaning of Tom Jones. We had the first article I'm aware of in cultural studies or the sociology of, 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 of leisure and so on, on, on skiing, the meaning of skiing. But we were opening up areas, but in Birmingham, the Centre for Centre Cultural Study, uh, under Stuart Hall's inspiration after Richard Hoggart, was hugely influential on a broader reach because of the Open University's adult education mission, U203 was phenomenal. And I met a lot of people there. In fact, the book you might know that I produced um, and edited, Consumption, Identity and Style, in many respects was a, a, a network that emerged from the, the people I met teaching on U203 in the mid-1980s. It's a terrific book. So you mentioned that while 
doing that, you were involved in uh, leisure studies at Brighton, Polytechnic as it then was, now University of Brighton. What took you then towards leisure? What took you towards oh, sport, which has become the mm. focus really of your work? Economic need, initially. Um, there were not a lot of academic jobs available in the sociology of literature. I think only one in the th two or three years in which I was looking for an academic post uh, more focused on my, my interests. So, I also, at graduate school, um, and at an undergraduate, I was captain of the soccer team at the university. And um, as one can, if you've got the privileges of full-time study, which I had for seven years, fully funded, from the age of 18 to 25, I could do other things. I could act in the drama society, um, but I also became a qualified football association coach and a qualified referee. When my wife became pregnant, uh, we needed, I needed to work. Um, what happened is a, a lectureship came up in the local PE college. Physical uh, education. Physical education college. Uh, I'm not qualified in physical education, but I have a very good sporting pedigree and profile. And I had all the academic qualifications. So I, I, I went for interview and was appointed to develop courses on the sociology of leisure, the sociology of sport, because hardly anybody had done that. So this means that my former roommate, your oldest daughter, Alice Tomlinson, is literally responsible for <laughs> the authorship, co-authorship and editing of dozens of books and hundreds of articles and chapters. Yeah, maybe, maybe I would have just been a, a drifter and a bomb. If, if um, her you mother might have been had been the oldest referee in the Premier League. <laughs> yeah, I, I could. Yeah, yeah, I could have been. So you could have been the the first properly qualified manager of Manchester United. Oh, All well, kinds of things no, would come away had it not been for Alice. And Alice and her arrival. Yeah. And so I thought I'd have that job for a few years and move on. But um, I love Brighton. Brighton is, um, I call it, the Santa Monica of Europe. It's a fabulous city. Lovely, beautiful coastal place. city with bohemian culture and life down, great architecture. And of course, Alan uh, used to be anyway a fixture at the Brighton Arts Club. Oh, the Brighton Arts Club folded, but the Brighton Arts Club was a magical venue. Yeah, it was a magical venue. It folded. It folded. It went. Uh, yeah, uh, it just it went bankrupt. It's now, it's now the hotel, uh, the um, hotel du Vin. Did this happen when you remarried and had less reason to go there? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, what happened? Interestingly, is that I just got very interested in leisure, and also all of my interdisciplinary expertise, methodologically, theoretically, uh, could, I, I shifted it in a way away, away from literature and towards the, the leisure and popular culture and sport in particular. And over time, this place at Brighton, during in part its transformation from a polytechnic to a university, but before as well, became a real powerhouse of work on whatever we call it, sociology of sport, cultural studies of sport, didn't it? You've had yeah. people go through there and remain there, build their careers there, who are very important. We have. You, you, John Sugden joined us in the mid-1990s, um, but we've got people who 
combined, say, critical documentary filmmaking about leisure and sport, Ian MacDonald is something of with writing, uh, writing deep critical analytical works as well on, on, on that we've got some very good feminist scholars Belinda Wheaton who really is a world expert on lifestyle sports and um, I supervised Belinda's doctorate she was in the ESRC Economic and Social Research Council doctoral student ship holder uh, Belinda does great work on um, lifestyle sports and gender. Jane Cordwell uh, is one of the pioneering theorists, of, uh, queer theorists of, of sport in, in the United Kingdom and beyond. Uh, we've also got a generation. Uh, you've had one. We've had one of these people on the previous podcast, Toby, haven't you? Uh, because we began a sport journalism degree, so we appointed several journalism colleagues. Rob Steen is one of these, and and we built we built up a, a group of people uh, at which numbers some have moved elsewhere in the university out of the group that we built the sport and leisure cultures group but we, we, we were 18 to 20 critical scholars at one stage um, in, in, recently so I, I think I think some people have called it the, the most the, the most uh, developed group of critical scholars working in this kind of sphere um, anywhere and when you use the word critical, that interests me because, again, going back 20 years, you were part, maybe more, you were part of a debate, a kind of struggle within the sociology of sport in the English-speaking world. Over cultural studies and Gramscian theories in particular, as opposed to the kind of profoundly applied, instrumental, rats and stats, quantoid world of the bottom feeders of United States positivistic sociology. Yeah, and, and that kind of sociology, well, you can use C. Wright Mills, the great United States sociologist in the 1950s and 1960s, who, who wrote that wonderful book, The Sociological Imagination. You can use some of his categories to think about this, that highly accomplished technical work, yeah. um, what he called abstracted empiricism uh, could be accomplished in, in some of those approaches, uh, uh, which in the end uh, looked like a kind of almost um, arithmetical acrobatic, which, which sometimes was linked to cause and effect analysis. This is what produced X, is what produced Y, and, and here, here's our, our way of, of evidencing that. But, the, but that, some kinds of studies of who did what, why they did what, that kind of thing, they were rooted in that, but also a theoretical framework of, of functionalism at times, or, or a softer form of functionalism was what we call equilibrium theory. Yeah, so if somebody's balancing something by being poor over there, and somebody balances it by being rich over there, then there's a sort of scale. The metaphor you could think of is the old-fashioned scales, which back, back, move them down and create an equilibrium that everybody accepts. So there's a highly accomplished and technical sort of approach to, to, to China understand what sport did and what, what it was for, uh, but it was it was linked as well to, to a, 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 an ideologically driven kind of e functionalist equilibrium theory. We just had to ask more questions about power, status, 
um, what what the real driving motivations of of, of, of sports entrepreneurs were, and we, and we had to and we had to ask questions about about discourse. Yeah, we might really love the the positive looking effects of, of, of that big sporting event that we were discussing a, a form of magnificent trivia but but who, who's at the heart of that white men old men young men you know, who's excluded from these these fantastically um, pleasurable um, sporting rituals so there was an agenda really to bring in some 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 truly critical questions about how sport and I keep using the word innocent here an apparently innocent sphere of play uh, in fact could 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 be um, a, a hugely significant form of power or control um, a, a, as well as experiential pleasure we've got five minutes left Alan I'm wondering if from that time Tell us where you see the field heading now. That's a good question. The, sport, the, the, the critical work on sport. Yes, we could take that afield. We could also or popular say work on sport more generally. I mean, it's a bit of a lay down misere, your choice. Yeah, I, I, I think what, what happens at times in some of these areas is that the fields spawn subfields and uh, subspecialisms and, and they're interesting kinds of, of, of growth and, um, and, and contraction. So I, my, my own view is, is that, that something as important as leisure needs to be put back on the agenda as a, as a, as a category and a, as a field. Le leisure studies in a way in the United Kingdom certainly and in parts of North America where it went by once, I think in Canada, I, I encountered a faculty of recreology. Recreology? Recreology. Sounds painful. Is it that sounds, something you have to have done every 10 years pretty, after you've turned Yeah, it sounds pretty bad, the recreological agenda. Uh, but, <laughs> and you've got to start yourself for 24 hours before yeah. you undergo yeah. the examination. But what, what I've seen when I look closely at cultural studies, Variant screen studies, media studies, some adaptations of communication studies, um, uh, dimensions of, of women's studies and men's studies, and sports studies. Uh, at times, we, we've Try, understandably, in, in order to make the mark and establish the field, uh, we, we've argued for certain dimensions of the field as distinctive. In fact, a lot of these share the same theoretical agenda and the same methodological imperatives. And, and they ought to know more about each other and, and state and, and, and make fewer fewer claims to be utterly distinctive because we're doing the same thing. So I think there's a there's a broader field. I'd call in my in my particular variant of it, it's it, it's it's really the um the, the, the critical field of, of um of, of, of my my personal cultural studies influenced version of leisure studies that I, that I think we need to we, we need to bring back to prominence. Well, Alan, I want to thank you very much for this hour together. It's been terrific. has that been an hour it's t talking to you, Toby? Time flies as ever. <laughs>
That's because you had so much food to eat, so many words to say, so much liquid to down, and somehow the magically you did it all. Well, thank you very much. It's good to feel that you've accomplished anything this early in the morning. <laughs> I want to extract a promise from you, if I may, old friend. Uh, I, you didn't get to talk about it today. Uh, there are so many other books and articles you've done. Uh, I know you're working on uh, some new stuff now, which you mentioned briefly, but other things you didn't mention. Will you come back to the pod soon and we can talk about many of your other works and ones to come? That would be fun, very interesting and irresistible. <laughs>